Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church Podcast. The current sermon series is entitled Radiant Church, verse by verse through Titus. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. It's not very loud or startling, but if you're a member of the USA's 4x100 relay team, that sound is devastating. It's the sound of a baton hitting the track from a botched exchange. In 2008, both of the United States men's and women's Olympic relay teams dropped batons, which led to, quote, a comprehensive review of the relay program. Why is it so hard to do something that looks so easy? Well, in the, a New York Times article published in 2012, during the 2012 Summer Olympics, Olympics, four years later, several sprinters shared their own theories to illuminate the complexity of passing the baton. Some said the average fan does not realize how difficult it is for a runner that's slowing down to pass a small piece of metal, a tube, to a runner speeding up and do it within a 20-meter exchange zone. But one thing every sprinter agreed on was this. In a relay race, how well you run the race means nothing if the baton does not get passed. A dropped baton by an Olympic sprinter means years of training and hard work and perseverance were all for nothing. You know, the New Testament describes the Christian life like a relay race. However, no matter how well we run, the race means nothing if the baton does not get passed. We're continuing our study today in the book of Titus in a series called Radiant Church. I want to invite you to open up your Bibles with me to Titus chapter 2. The title of this message is uh, Leaving a Legacy That Lasts. And I want to invite you to take notes in the sermon note handout that's in your worship folder. And if you need a Bible, just raise your hand real quick and one of our ushers will bring one to you. Our series key verse comes from chapter 2. And as you've heard me mention this summer, it's a, a verse that uh, inspired the title of this series. It's in chapter 2, verse 10. If you haven't underlined it in your Bible or highlighted it yet, I'd encourage you to do so. It's where Paul says, so that in every way we can make the teaching about God, our Savior, attractive. Uh, Paul's instruction, I think, in the, ver uh, the book of Titus can be condensed down to one simple big idea. And that is that a radiant church makes the gospel attractive to an ugly world. This seasoned apostle in the sunset of his ministry knows that God wired every human being to be attracted to beauty, whether they're saved or not saved. Thus he spends three chapters making a case for why and how local churches are to be attractive for unbelievers. Here's the big idea that I want to zero in on for today in the verses that we'll be looking at, and it's this, radiant churches leave a lasting legacy 
by passing the baton to future generations. Radiant churches leave a lasting legacy by passing the baton to future generations. Our passage today poses a sobering question that I am praying you will humbly ponder. And the question is this, who are you impacting today that will ensure you are remembered tomorrow? In the first six verses of chapter 2, Paul demonstrates or expresses a concern about both the reputation and legacy of the Lord's church. It just oozes out of his heart. He's concerned that unbelievers outside the church will not want to hear the gospel message because of the way some church members carry themselves. He's also concerned about the future of the Lord's church. As Paul finishes out the final leg of his own ministry career, he's clearly contemplating this question. Who will carry the baton of the gospel to the next generation? Who's, who's going to grow the church and lead the church when I'm gone? And so we pick up Paul's uh, instructions in chapter 2, verse 1. But as for you... Teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to, to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Here's the first point on your outline, the first truth statement that I think we can glean from the passage, and that is this, the Lord is never finished with older Christians. He's never finished with older Christ followers. Unfortunately, this is not the mindset in many Christian churches, nor in most American, amongst American Christians. This is because American Christians, many of them, have adopted the worldly mindset that retirement is the ultimate goal to accomplish in life. And a season in which they can justify being very self-centered. I found this profound uh, Norman Cousins said this. He hit the nail on the head when writing about retirement in America for Christians. He says, quote, While retirement in America has become a chance to join the winner's circle, it has turned out to be more dangerous than automobiles or LSD. A chance to do everything that leads to nothing. The holy scriptures that we base our faith on Mention nothing about retirement. Did you know that? Retirement is not mentioned anywhere. And I think this is because the godly saints in the Bible couldn't imagine it. They loved the Lord so much that they wanted to invest everything they could in his kingdom until their dying last breath. However, the American concept of retirement causes Christ followers to die before they die. God's word implicitly teaches that 
Christ followers should retire to something instead of from something. You should retire from doing ministry part-time to doing it full-time. And to have a kingdom mindset of, great, now that I don't have to work anymore for a living, I have more time to give to the Lord and the gospel and kingdom work and discipleship and serving and prayer. I think this is a worthy mindset because so long as he continues to put breath in your lungs, he's definitely not done using you yet. You're still here. You still have a purpose. Now, with retirement not even being an option, the Apostle Paul explains what seasoned Christ followers should be doing instead. And so he starts out talking about the older men and the older women. So here's letter A on your outline. The older men should invest in younger men. They should invest in younger men. Now, older, of course, raises the question, well, who exactly is Paul referring to here? Because in our culture today, old has a certain perspective that's relative. Uh, Compared to my kids, I'm an old man in my mid-40s. And they like to remind me of that. Dad, you're old. Dad, you're just old. Stop acting old, Dad. But to someone, say, in their mid-60s or 70s, they look at me and say, dude, you are so young. And they would say it like that, too, right? But seriously, scholars believe in first century culture in Crete, uh, where Titus was ministering, it was most likely meant to convey those over the age of 40. Sorry, I couldn't give you any more encouragement there. But uh, um, due to life expectancy and how the culture was back then, probably men over the age of 40. So he says they should be sober-minded. This word is sometimes translated temperate. Uh, it means to be sober, not addicted to wine. One of the issues that's believed to have existed on Crete is that, uh, as you've heard me reference already from chapter 1, verse 12, that Cretans were liars and drunks and uh, evil beasts and gluttons. They, they were not known for their work ethic, and they were certainly not known for their godliness. And so uh, it's believed that Paul maybe wrote this because some of the older men that were retired or too old to work anymore were filling their time up with consuming too much alcohol. And so they were not sober-minded, straight in the head. They were to be dignified, in verse 2, meaning worthy of respect or serious-minded. Now, he's not saying they should be curmudgeons or uh, pompous statesmen. Uh, the, The scriptures have no problem, and certainly Paul doesn't either, with believers having fun, laughing, or enjoying the blessings that God has given us. Instead, he's saying that older men should not act like clowns. They should be respectable. It's a reference to maturity. They should take seriously what needs to be taken seriously. They should be self-controlled. Sophronos, which means to be sensible and sound in mind or self-disciplined. It it describes someone that is not only in his right mind, but able to control himself and deny himself and manage his body and mind. It's a character quality that Paul mentions for all four groups in chapter 2. It's in verse 2, 5, and 6. Suggesting that self-control was a struggle for all believers, as I suspect it is today. These older men should be sound in faith. Contrary to the false teachers that are talked about in chapter 1, older men were to know what they believe and to know why they believe it. 
able to open up the scriptures and explain the gospel and the key doctrines of the faith because they've spent their lives studying the scriptures. So their faith must be built on solid doctrine and then produce love and faithfulness. I think Paul is calling us and the Cretan believers here to live godly lives because you can't put straight in others what's crooked in yourself. We have to be an example worth following first. And if you're sitting here listening to this going, well, I, I could never in, you know, invest in anybody, disciple anybody, or you know, mentor anyone because I'm not a good example. Well, why not? Why aren't you being a good example? Why not fix that instead of going, well, I never could be, I never could, and I never will, and I'm not good enough, and we'll talk about that here in a few minutes. But letter B, uh, here's what he next addresses. The next group is the older women. Again, probably women over 40. They should invest in the younger women. The younger women, it's believed, were in the range of 20 to 40, child-rearing years. Likewise, Paul says in verse 3, uh, meaning the qualities that he just described for the older men also should apply to the older women. They were to emulate these things and have these qualities as well. They were to not be slanderers. You'll notice in verse 3, this is a fascinating word in the original language. It's uh, diabolus. Slander is a, it's a sin of falsely accusing someone of spreading or spreading lies about them that aren't true. It comes from this Greek word, diabolus, which uh, many European languages get their word devil from. The slanderer. It's one of the many names of the adversary. Earlier, Paul had observed that idle men, older men, were being tempted to consume too much alcohol with all their free time. Well, here, he's, he's saying, the older women, they're going to be prone to slander, sins of the mouth, gossip talking with their idle time. And what he's telling both groups is, no, 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 you need to get at it. You've got work to do for the kingdom. Invest your lives in the next generation instead of filling your spare time with consuming too much alcohol or sinning by slandering and gossiping. Now, all these qualities, both for men and women, they're all attainable through a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. One of my fears for for us is that we might read these things and go, oh, I'm just going to try harder and I'm going to get there and I'm going to become like this. But you can't do it in your own strength. You can't. And the Lord knows that. That's why whatever he calls us to do, he enables us to do. And by abiding in Christ and leaning on his sustaining grace and allowing the indwelling spirit to work, the godly qualities that are being described here by Paul are attainable, and they will make us eligible and able to invest in future generations. In his excellent book called Iron Sharpens Iron, or As Iron Sharpens Iron, Dr. Howard Hendricks from Dallas Seminary writes that every Christ follower should have the following three people in their lives. I want to encourage you to write this down. I apologize. I didn't have time to get this into your sermon notes, but we'll put it up on the, there's a table, and we'll put it up on the keynote screen real quick. Uh, Dr. Hendricks, I remember he preached this not only uh, 
Well, it was it. he preached, I heard him preach it at a Promise Keepers conference some 20 plus years ago, but then it's also in his book, As Iron Sharpens Iron. And he says wisely, and it's been often quoted, that every Christian needs three people, a Paul, a Barnabas, and a Timothy. A Paul that's a mentor to you, someone that has been where you want to go, regardless of your age, and I'll talk about that in a minute. A Barnabas, who would be a peer that you've given permission to speak into your life. A peer that loves you, but isn't impressed by you. A peer that you've given permission to say the truth, to speak the truth in love to you. Maybe the hard things when you need to hear it. And then a Timothy, a protege, someone that needs to know where you've been. And again, this would apply to all age groups, whether you are in high school, college, or uh, you're a young married, or middle-aged, or in retirement years. A Christian needs all three of these. For the Christ follower, until you have become identical with Jesus Christ, exactly like him, you should not be done growing, regardless of your age. You've not arrived. One mentor that I recruited to coach me just a few years ago um, was in his mid-70s at the time. And I had uh, sought him out to help me grow in uh, my leadership and administrative skills. And I'll never forget the time that I was having a, a coaching call with him, and I asked him for some counsel on a sin struggle I was dealing with at the time. And, and he replied, uh, well, I struggle with that too, even at my age. Which in my mind I was thinking, I had two thoughts that quickly went through my mind on that call. Well, that's, that's nice to know that he, you know, I'm not the only person that struggles with this. Wait a minute, that's not so encouraging to know because that means I'll never be done struggling with this, you know. So I, I was, first of all, wrestling with that. And then he says to me, Carrie, my mentor told me recently, and I interrupted him, wait a minute, wait, 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 wait. Did you just say you have a mentor you're, you're 73? And you get, he says, well, yeah, of course. I'm not done growing yet. To which I was like, drop the phone, drop the mic. Let's just close in prayer right there, okay? <laughs> I'd never heard that before. He said, yeah, of course. I, you know, I, I spend my life right now pouring into several leaders like yourself, but, but I need somebody to speak into my life. And I have no doubt that he had peers as well, that he conferred with that were honest with him about his weaknesses and areas he needed to grow. But this area of discipleship and mentoring, it's something I have found gets easily neglected in churches, and I have found also that there are common, some common excuses that Christians use for not doing it. Here's, a, here's three that I thought of. Uh, first of all, I'm too busy. I, I just don't have time, pastor, to do this. Well, I want to challenge that thinking because we make time for what's important to us. We've all been given the same amount of time by the Lord to use for his glory, to steward for his glory. And just as we can be selfish with the money he's entrusted to us, we can also be selfish with the time he's entrusted to us. The scriptures remind us that only three things will last forever. God, his word, and the souls of men. Only three things. And so 
uh, the simple, this simple truth that those three things are the only things that will last forever should inform us as we prayerfully discern how should I invest the money and the time and the gifts and talents that God's given me? How can I do it wisely if God, his word, and the souls of men are the only things that are going to last forever? That would mean that just about everything else I do won't last forever. Here's a second common excuse I hear. I have nothing to offer. What can I possibly teach someone else about the faith? Or I don't know the Bible that well, or so on and so forth. In the book I mentioned earlier by Hendricks, his Iron Sharpens Iron, he talks about the profound impact the Sunday school teacher that led him to faith in Christ had on his life. That Sunday school teacher's name was Walt. So Hendricks tells a quick story about him. Quote, Overall, Walt incarnated Christ for me, says Hendricks. And not only for me, but for 13 other boys in my neighborhood in South Philadelphia. Nine of whom also came from broken homes, like me. Remarkably, 11 of us went on to pursue careers as vocational Christian workers. Which is ironic, given that Walt himself completed school only through the sixth grade. It just goes to show that a man doesn't need a PhD for God to use him to shape another man. What Walt was able to impart, what he did have, was a deep abiding love for the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what he passed on to these 13 boys in a rough neighborhood in Philadelphia. Now, if God can use a man that dropped out of school in the sixth grade to disciple future Christian leaders, isn't it possible that the Lord could use you? I see a lot of folks in this room that have a lot to offer to the next generation. If you can share what you've learned from your past mistakes and articulate what the Lord is teaching you in the present, then you can be used by him to shape a life. You don't have to be perfect or have it all together, but if you can say, yeah, um, 10 years ago I did this, that was stupid, don't do that. Here's what God taught me through that. Let me show you some verses I learned. That's powerful. That is, that is valuable. That's treasure that can be used to shape a life. You see, the Lord isn't looking for believers that are impeccable. He just needs believers that are available, available to be used and he will do the rest. So, I'm too busy, I have nothing to offer. Here's another common excuse. I don't know how. How could I possibly disciple, mentor somebody else in the faith, and I don't know how? You know, Pastor, you went to seminary, isn't that what they taught you to do? <laughs> well, you do have things of value that can be helpful. You have knowledge. You have experience. You have a network of relationships that a protege does not have. In addition to all of that, you have a pastor that's more than willing to point you towards some resources so you can learn how to be an effective mentor. 
So applications, what do, we, what do we do with this? I know you're already thinking, golly, don't we have enough applications already? Um, you've given us a lot to think about. Let's just close in prayer and sing a couple more songs, right? Well, here's two that come to mind for the older generation folks, and I'll have two for the, those that are younger. Um, but you all need to write them down, regardless of your age. Um, here's the application one. Tell the Lord you're willing to invest in someone if needed. Make yourself available. Now, I realize right now, as a small church, there may not be as many opportunities, and it doesn't have to be somebody within our church. It could be someone else that, in another church in the community. But, but if we're going to grow as a church, and I believe we will, and as we grow, we're going to need to be committed as a church to making disciple making disciples. The Lord may have someone that needs you right now. Or he may be getting you ready for someone he's going to bring your way in five years. But again, he just wants you to be available. Your job is to be growing in your walk with Jesus so you are ready to respond when you get the call. Here's a second application if you're over 40. And you younger ones can write it down and you can remind the folks that are over 40 about this, right? Um, You're going to like this one. Humble yourselves by striving to be reasonably relevant. Oh, don't go there, Pastor. Humble yourself by striving to be reasonably relevant. One of the fruits of pride that I often see in seasoned seasoned Christians is a resistance to change. Because they think the good old days have come and gone. Thus, they won't learn how to use a smartphone, won't use social media, listen to modern music, or stay current with today's culture. Now, please don't misunderstand me here. I'm not saying you uh, need to dress like a teenager. You should dress your age. Nor am I saying you should like Beyonce, Justin Bieber, and Katy Perry. I'm not saying that either. But you should know who they are. You see, failing to do so makes you appear irrelevant to younger generations. It makes you appear out of touch where they can't relate to you at all. Again, it's not that you have to like everything that they like, but you at least have to be able to converse about it or talk about it a little bit. It says in Ecclesiastes 7.10, you might want to jot that reference down, you can look it up later if you don't believe me. Uh, Solomon, very wise man, said, Say not, why were the former days better than these? It is not from wisdom that you ask this. You see, what I've noticed about myself and a lot of other adults over the years is that we tend to form an emotional bond to a certain decade. And usually that decade is childhood-related or our high school years because we have a lot of fond memories from that decade. And then we kind of lift that decade up on a pedestal like, oh man, those were the times. There was like no time like that ever. They don't make music like that anymore. Remember when and remember when and you, it's too bad you couldn't have been there. And we talk like that. Now, are there some things worse today than they were 10, 20, 30 years ago? Perhaps. Do you remember that there were also problems 10, 20, and 30 years ago? Things weren't great back then either. But we tend to sort of sanctify the decade in which we grew up in and make it better than it was. And uh, I've been guilty of this too. 
But the fact is, is that every decade has its problems and every decade has its blessings and things that were good about it. Right now, teenagers and college students probably think, oh, right now is the best ever. But that'll change. In a few years, they'll have kids get married and they'll go, oh, man, you should have been in the 2010s, teens. It was awesome. I mean, it was like there was just never a time like that ever again. Even though it was my generation, the 80s, that invented awesome and dude and <laughs> things like that. But, but my point is, is that if you're too out of touch with today's culture, then potential protégés will perceive you as unable to relate to them. Now, I'll talk about the other side in a few minutes, but um, those would be two applications that come to mind. Uh, number two, uh, point number two in your outline is this. The Lord has a future for young Christ followers. He has a future. He has plans. Young Christ followers need to be prepared to carry the baton of the gospel into the next century so that the Lord's kingdom can continue to be populated. And so the Lord's church doesn't cease to exist in the near future. Here are a few reasons why everyone needs a mentor, especially those that are younger and newer to the faith. But I think this applies to all ages. Uh, you need a mentor, uh, first of all, because a mentor can help you grow faster. They can teach you things that will take longer to learn all by yourself. And be more painful to learn, I might add. They can help, help you avoid making the same mistakes that they did when they were younger. This is why professional golfers like Dustin Johnson and Rory McIlroy and Phil Mickelson, they hire swing coaches to watch their swing and then give them feedback so that they don't have to figure it out on, on their own. It, take, it would take longer. They'd have to record it, go back home, watch the video, then go back to the course and try and tweak things and... A coach can point things out they can't see and fix them faster. So a mentor can help you grow faster. I certainly have seen that in my own life. Here's another reason why you need a mentor. A mentor can help you grow farther. They can help you grow farther. A good coach will encourage you when you're discouraged and push you and kick you in the derriere when you're needing to be kicked to go farther than what you normally think you could do. This is why people hire or take a class with personal trainers at the local health club. I see it all the time right now I, where I work out. I'm, as I'm on the elliptical, I can see the elliptical machine uh, five, six days a week. I look over and there are classes going on behind closed doors. And I was thinking about it this week. I'm like, those people have paid to be in that class because they've realized they can't get any further in their fitness without help. And that's not a bad thing. They just have admitted it. I need someone to teach me how to be more fit now because I can't do it on my own and I need somebody to yell at me to push me to go further because I would quit as soon as it starts to hurt a little bit. That's why they do it. No great athlete has accomplished great things without a coach that said, yes, you can. You can do it. Just as a godly mentor would say to a young wife or a young husband that wants to throw in the towel on their marriage, yes, you can make it. Yes, your marriage can get better. No, you're not going to quit. Your family needs you. Your children need you to make it work. 
Whereas without that voice pushing you, it would be much easier to give up. So mentors can help you grow faster and they can help you grow farther. Here's what Paul says in verses 4 and 5. Younger women should learn from the older women. There's some humility here that he's asking for. The younger women need to realize you don't know everything you need to know. But God in his sovereignty has put people in the church around you that can help you. What are they supposed to learn? Well, they should learn, verse 4, to love their husbands. In this context, it means that they are to put their husband's welfare before their own self-interest. Genesis 2 and other passages and scriptures teach that a Christian wife is to be the helper who supports her husband as he leads and provides for the family. Verse 5, the younger women need to learn to work at home. Uh, sometimes this is translated keeping or caring for the home. Now, this does not forbid a woman from working outside the home. There are certainly cases where that's necessary. In fact, we see a wife in Proverbs 31 do this very thing. She takes care of the home and also balances responsibilities outside the home, supplementing her husband's income. However, any wife working outside the home must guard her heart because the world teaches that uh, your identity comes from your work and that children are a burden. Whereas God's word says, your identity comes from Christ and children are a blessing. And raising them is a great privilege that allows you to impact future generations. So that's just something, that's a temptation that women have to be aware of. Paul says also in verse 5, what, well, what else do the younger women need to learn from the older women? Well, they need to learn to be submissive to their own husband. One of the biggest ways that wives can love their husbands is by showing them respect through submission. The word submit comes from the Greek word hupotasso. It, it means to, to yield voluntarily or to subject oneself or to come under the protection of something. Last week, I defined submission uh, like this. Here's a, a biblical definition for submission. It is joyfully yielding to God-ordained authority after respectfully disagreeing. I think I mentioned last week as well, I found it fascinating that submission shows up in all three chapters of Titus, suggesting that it was a problem for the Cretans, being the wild bunch that they are. But I think there's a nugget of encouragement hidden in this verse here in verse 5 for wives. Paul asking older wives to teach the younger wives on this issue not only validates its importance, but it also validates its difficulty. In other words, if submitting to a husband was easy and everybody was doing it, it wouldn't be necessary for Paul to give this directive. Now, because of time and limitations, I won't be able to expand on this topic further today, but if you want to learn more about submission and what the scriptures teach about the role of the husband and the wife in marriage, I'd encourage you to check out uh, the sermon series I did last year called Extreme Marriage Makeover. It's still on our website, and it should still be on our podcast. Lord willing, I'll explain what submission looks like in the workplace next week. Now, why is this important? In verse 5, Paul says that the word of God may not be reviled. Reviled is, it comes from the Greek word uh, blasphemo, it, or blasphemeo, excuse me. It, it means uh, 
to discredit or malign or shame or to look down upon. Uh, it's, it's rendered in different ways in different translations. But the reason why young women are to learn the previous seven qualities is that they represent something bigger than themselves. Paul's saying the word of God should not be reviled. Instead, it should be respected because of the character and godliness of those in the church. Healthy marriages and Christ-like character makes it harder for critics to discredit the gospel. Because such things as a healthy marriage and godly character are proof that the Spirit is working in changing lives. But when those things are not present, Paul is saying it gives ammunition to unbelievers. They go, ah, see, that's why I don't go to church because all those hypocrites. That's why. What what difference is Jesus going to make in my marriage if it hasn't helped you born-again Christians' marriage? Here's letter B. Younger men should learn from the older men. Titus, in verse 6, is urged to tell them, teach them to be self-controlled. Since younger men are prone to be impulsive and have volatile behavior, Titus is urged to tell them, put the brakes on your ambitions, restrain your sexual desires, and bridle your tongue. Shortly after I, uh, I proposed to Maya when I was a senior in college, and uh, shortly after I did that, I was at, we were both new believers and involved in our church and college ministry, but shortly after I did that, sort of the reality of that decision set in. I had a deer-in-headlights moment. Like, what did I just do? And uh, the reason for this was that I had no clue what a healthy marriage looked like. Because I, I grew up in an unbelieving home in which both my parents had divorced twice. So I had no good example to follow. And I'd gotten saved in college and been hearing for a couple years, you know, the man's supposed to be the leader of the home and wife is supposed to do this and the husband's supposed to spiritually develop his family. And I'm going, what does that look like? I've never seen that before. And so I had this desperate uh, sense of being unqualified and unprepared for what was about to happen in a few months. And so I... I approached an elder in my church that, at the time, appeared to have a healthy marriage, and I asked him if he'd mentor me. Hey, would you please meet with me weekly for a while, because I, I just proposed, and now I'm getting married, and, and yeah, Maya, the redhead, yeah, her, and um, yeah, yeah, you probably met her, and it's, uh, I have no idea what I'm doing. And uh, I don't have a good track record in my home, you know, my, my family background. Divorce is pretty rampant in my family. Thankfully, he agreed, and we spent the next uh, several months leading up to my wedding going through a book written for husbands called Point Man by Steve Farrar, which I highly recommend that book if you haven't read it yet. Um, It's a great book. I learned a ton from Tom as we went through that book because it allowed me to ask him questions like, how do you do this, and what about that, and have you ever messed up here where it says, you know, page 39 and Ferrar's talking about it? You ever blown that? He's like, oh, yeah, let me tell you this one time back in 1989. Whoa, that was a rough year. Yeah, you know, Bush was in office, first Bush, and so on and so forth. And, you know, the Cold War is coming to an end, but 
it was just starting in my house, you know. And so, um, but, but he was able to, and then I'd ask him, well, how do you handle this? And what, what, how's that look like? And, well, here's what, here's what we did, and this was what worked for our family, and so on and so forth. And, and so it was, uh, it was just precious. I learned priceless principles, and uh, it helped fuel my passion for discipling men today. So applications, um, just in case the older uh, believers here are thinking, hey, when are you going to pick on the younger ones? Um, well, now's the time. So here's application number one. For those that are younger, ask the Lord to provide a mentor. Actually, all of you should ask for that, especially those in your 70s, as I mentioned earlier. Um, doing so demonstrates a humility that is pleasing to the Lord. It shows that you don't have all the answers and you realize that you need help. That, that you need another brother or sister in Christ to come alongside you that has some strengths in areas where you are weak that can help shore up your weaknesses. Here's uh, number two. Uh, humble yourself by elevating timeless biblical truth over temporary cultural trends. Now, Here's what I mean by that. Younger believers tend to um, they tend to make today's trends, clothes, technology, music, idols. Like, this is so awesome, and everybody else should be like this, and if you're not, you don't think like this, you don't listen to this, you don't talk like this, you're old, you're out of style, you're out of date, and thus you're irrelevant. But trends change. So just as older believers have arrogantly criticized today's culture, I've seen some younger believers idolize it. Where they make it seem like, if you don't do these things, you're not cool and I don't have to listen to you. <laughs> not everyone, but some do that. And in doing so, they live as though nothing of value existed before their lifetime. And that's not true. Life was happening and God was moving before you were born, just like he was before I was born. Older, more mature believers have something that you cannot create, buy, or download. They have experience. They have perspective. And they have wisdom. Such things can only be gained through the crucible of life. You can't get them in an app. You can't find those things on a website. You only get it by living life. So, the Christian life is like a relay race. No matter how well you run, the race means nothing if the baton of the gospel does not get passed. So who are you impacting today that will ensure you are remembered tomorrow? I dream of a day when our church is known for raising up disciple-making disciples. Because radiant churches leave a lasting legacy. And Vanguard will be around for your grandkids and my grandkids to worship here. If we pass the baton on to future generations. All you need to do is walk with the Lord and make yourself available. Would you join me? as we close in prayer. Heavenly Father, I realize that um, for some here today, this passage seems irrelevant to them. 
Lord, I just ask that by your spirit, you would make it relevant. And you would show them how it does connect to where they are. For others, Lord, I, I realize that the thought of being a mentor, of discipling someone, seems so ludicrous and outrageous that they just can't fathom it. Lord, would you, would you remind them that you're the same God that also raises the dead and does outrageous things like splitting oceans and multiplying bread and fish? Father, would you, would you raise up within our church godly mentors that not only can share their experience and their wisdom, but know the word very well and can open the scriptures and explain timeless truths on any issue. Lord, also, I pray that you would raise up humble people that realize they need a mentor, they need someone to disciple them, that they don't have all the answers. They need to be refined and coached by someone. Lord, we know that when you were here on this earth, you valued relationships and you valued discipleship. You spent three and a half years pouring your life into 12 men that changed the world. Lord, we want to replicate that here at Vanguard. We, we want to multiply ourselves so that the gospel spreads and the church thrives. So by your grace and by your spirit, would you make that possible? Thank you, Lord, for your word. And we thank you, Lord, for your spirit that partners with the word to penetrate our hearts and reveal more of you to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Again, we hope you've enjoyed listening to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast by Pastor Kerry Knack. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope to see you at Vanguard Bible Church.